Hi, everyone. This is On the Environment, the podcast from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. My name is Alex Kashtan, and I'm a master's student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Today, I'm excited to welcome Sue Biniaz to the podcast. Sue served for over 30 years in the State Department, where she was the lead climate lawyer and negotiator for the United States from 1989 to 2017. Her work has spanned from the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change through the 2015 Paris Agreement and beyond. She is currently a senior fellow at the UN Foundation and a visiting lecturer at Yale. Sue, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So to start off, um, I'd like to hear what your sense is about the progress leading up to COP24 in Poland in December. Well, good question. Um, so you may know that the COP this year really has two main um, areas of focus. One is to deliver the so-called rule book under the Paris Agreement, which is basically to agree on the various guidelines and procedures that will help implement the agreement. And the other is for the parties to um, the Paris Agreement to say something about ambition uh, to address climate change. So, you know, focusing on the rule book in particular, I think I would say there's good news and bad news. Uh, in the good news department, um, after several years, so about three, um, of not making much progress, the parties are sort of <laughs> recognizing that Katowice is around the corner and they've gotten much more serious about uh, their negotiations. The negotiating texts are shrinking down from hundreds of pages to much more manageable sizes. Uh, the parties are beginning to discuss or, you know, well on their way to discussing so-called landing zones, which are, you know, how the various issues will be resolved. So um, those are good things. But the bad news is there's still a lot of technical work uh, to be done. There's not very much negotiating time left, you know, in some cases really just like hours of negotiating time. Um, The texts are still way too long. So if you only um, uh, focused on the official negotiating time, you would be very nervous. So what we have to hope is that parties are you know, unofficially getting together bilaterally, regionally, um, you know, in various clusters over the next couple of weeks to try to resolve the hardest issues. And I think, you know, to a certain extent, they are doing that. Um, you know, what's interesting about the negotiations at this point is that the same types of issues are coming up with respect to negotiating these rule book issues as came up on the road to Paris. And it's kind of this tug of war between uh, how much parties are allowed to nationally determine what they're going to do and how much is internationally dictated uh, by the agreement or um, the rules. So, you know, with respect to almost every one of these issues that's being negotiated, you know, you've got at one end of the spectrum parties that are saying, you know, the guidelines should be should be very short, they should be very general, they should be non-legally binding. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got parties saying, no, they should be extensive, specific, legally binding. And so, uh, you know, the test will be whether they can find the the, kind of the Goldilocks um, balanced solution. What is most at stake in this next round of negotiations? Well, I think both the rule book and the issue of ambition are important. Um, On the rule book first, uh, it's important for both the substance of the Paris Agreement and the optics of the Paris Agreement Uh, for the parties to be able to agree on a reasonably robust or kind of ambitious rule book. If they fail to agree at all, like they literally cannot 
reach agreement at at the COP. Um, it would not instill much confidence in the Paris Agreement or or the process. I mean, what would it say if after the world was able to agree on the Paris Agreement three years ago, they were not able to agree three years later on you know much more technical guidelines? It wouldn't it wouldn't uh, speak well. Um, if they agree on a weak set of guidelines, that's not fantastic, but it's arguably better than, you know, no outcome at all. Um, and then on, on the ambition issue, it's important in light of uh, particularly the IPCC, recent IPCC report uh, on various degrees of, of warming for the parties to say something about this ambition issue, that they're concerned about it, that uh, they intend to at least consider taking more action. In some cases, maybe they commit to take um, greater action. I think it would be not speak well of the the process or the climate agreement if, you know, after all of the kind of extreme climate events and this kind of IPCC report, if the parties are are not able to say anything more than they like take note of the IPCC report. What would be the best outcome, and what do you think is the likely outcome? Oh, those are good questions. Um, I think the best outcome would be a strong, ambitious rule book. For example, one of the things the parties are looking at right now is when they hand in their nationally determined contributions, they're supposed to be clear about what they're committing to. Um, so it would be great if the guidelines could lay out, well, what are the types of information that make an NDC or a nationally determined contribution clear and say that the parties have to hand in that information, you know, as makes sense uh, for their particular NDC. Um, it would also be great if the parties would express, as I said, concern about kind of the gap between uh, their current targets and what needs to be done to reach the uh, temperature goal of the Paris Agreement, um, and that they're seriously committed to doing more. So that that's kind of the the extreme good outcome. Um, it's more likely that the rule book will, you know, not be a fantastically robust outcome, but it will be enough, or maybe just enough, to operationalize um, the Paris Agreement. And um, probably on the ambition issue. Um, There'll be, you know, something along a continuum somewhere between taking note of the IPCC report and saying everybody commits to take more action, you know, somewhere maybe halfway along that continuum. And probably the parties will leave some, you know, hyper-technical issues for the future just because there won't be time to address them and it's not as urgent to get them done this year. Given a best or worst case scenario, what happens after the conference? Well, if you take the worst case scenario of no outcome at all, um, I think it would be very hard to figure out how you pick up the pieces after that. You lose a lot of momentum. And you know many experts would probably leave the process at that point, and then it would make it even more difficult to, to pick up the pieces, even if you got the political um, momentum. In the best case of a strong outcome, the parties would go home and implement the agreement. They might seriously consider enhancing their nationally determined contributions. They might get ready to even announce that at the UN Secretary General Summit next year. Um, and you know, in a perfect world, they would spend more of their negotiating time under the Paris Agreement uh, discussing best practices, other implementation issues, uh, and not kind of negotiating in the more adver adversarial sense, which is how they've been negotiating for the last couple of years. What role are you playing for this year's COP? 
Well, as you said, I stopped representing the U.S. Uh, government in early 2017. So since then, I've been working for various think tanks and other types of organizations that care about this process. Um, those include the UN Foundation, a French think tank called IDRI, and a D.C.-based Center for Clean Energy Solutions. Um, and I've written a lot about the agreement and the open issues that are being negotiated this year. And the other thing that I've done, which has been um, a lot of fun and hopefully of use to the parties, is to facilitate several workshops for negotiators um, where I sort of write a paper on what the open issues are, what some of the options are, and then you know help convene smallish groups of negotiators, in other words, more like 25 or 30 rather than 196 um, countries, and discuss the issues and try to sort of get parties to come up with mutually agreeable solutions. And how do you see the U.S. role going forward? Uh, how do we progress without federal support? Yeah. Well, it's it's funny. Ever since the announcement um, that the U.S. was going to withdraw from the convention, it, you know, you have two different meanings of U.S. and U.S. role, and people have to stop and say, well, wait, which U.S. do you mean here, right? So the subnational actors in the United States, that U.S., uh, they've been doing a lot. You have the We Are Still In uh, coalition. You have the U.S. Climate Alliance of at least 17 states, plus uh, Puerto Rico kind of committed to the Paris Agreement, and also the uh, existing U.S. emissions target. Um, and those activities have been very important, both from a climate point of view, from a kind of substantive point of view, and also from a foreign policy point of view. They've allowed other countries to see that the U.S. is not monolithic. We haven't all kind of dropped off the face of the earth. And I think it's helped keep other parties um, committed to the Paris Agreement and to their nationally determined um, contributions. But um, the U.S. announcement is definitely hurting in other ways. There's less influence in the negotiations. I mean, the U.S. is still uh, participating, but you don't have that high level of engagement like you had under President Obama and Secretary Kerry, where they were able to uh, you know, encourage countries to do more and kind of do some uh, head bashing, I guess, to try to get countries to agree on, um, on so-called landing zones. Um, so you don't have that kind of leadership to cut the final deal or uh, to lead on environmental ambition. So, um, yes, there's still a strong U.S. role below the level of the federal government, but it's definitely not the same, and I think the regime will suffer for it. And before we finish, I have a few questions uh, that we like to ask all of our podcast guests. Uh, so first, what is a book that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, I mostly read fiction, um, but recently I've read a couple nonfiction books that I thought were so incredibly interesting that, you know, your readers might might also like them. One was called Other Minds, which is about the octopus. Um, and the other was called The Hidden Life of Trees. And so people who are interested in the environment, nature, or biology might find those as interesting as I did. Definitely. And then the second question is, what kind of media media are you consuming right now? That could be TV, magazines, podcasts, really anything. I generally don't consume podcasts because I'm not technologically savvy enough to know how to. Maybe you can teach me. Definitely. Um, I read a lot of magazines, uh, The New Yorker, New York Magazine, Travel Magazines, The Atlantic. So I'm a big consumer of magazines, kind of the old-fashioned way, like actually in hard copy. And um, like most people, particularly people who live in D.C. like I do, I'm kind of addicted to political news. And then I have to 
clear, clean my palate by escaping to Netflix and, um, you know, watching all kinds of, uh, of series. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Sue. Thank you for having me. Uh, that does it for this week's episode. You can find out more about the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy at envirocenter.yale.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter at Yale Enviro. That's Y-A-L-E-E-N-V-I-R-O.